afternoon. Today we are very, very pleased to welcome Daniel Levy. Daniel is the longest serving chairman in the Premier League, chairman of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club since 2000. A boyhood Spurs fan attending his first match at Old White Hart Lane in the 1960s, Daniel, unlike many of our membership, graduated with a first in economics and land economy from Sydney, Sussex, Cambridge. The managing director of Enoch International, Daniel spent decades working at the highest level of business and sport. Daniel Levy, welcome. Thank you. As I've said, you were a boyhood Spurs fan. Uh, when was your first match? I think I was probably about seven or eight years old. Um, and it was at the stage where I used to go to a game and have, get the rosette and the hot dog and the rattles. And it was uh, very different to what it is today. And from your earliest footballing memory, has working in football and working with the club that you support always been a dream of yours? It wasn't a dream at all. I, I got into football purely by accident and it wasn't, when I left university, it wasn't something that I went into football. I went into effectively investment banking. Um, and it was through that that I got into, into football. And before we sort of reach university, I watched an amazing video you did um, this morning, and I'd really recommend it, called Building a Home, about the uh, building of the Tottenham Hotspur new stadium. And then you mentioned that um, when you were at the age of 16, at your comprehensive school, you were told to leave school. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that and how you then ended up studying here at Cambridge? Uh, I think I was 15 and we had a parents' evening and uh, the teacher told my, my mum and dad, he's not going to make it, he should uh, leave school. And it was a bit of a wake-up call and I decided that actually I'd better do some work now. And so from that moment on I knuckled down and uh, I, I did my uh, O-levels at, I was at a comprehensive school and then I went to a further education college where I did my A-levels. And from there, I was determined to try and get into Oxford or Cambridge. Um, and I got into Cambridge and then I did my degree. And tell us a little bit about Daniel Levy, the student at Sydney Sussex in the 80s. Were you more likely to be found in the library or the college bar? Well, <laughs> well first of all, the rooms here, well, in Sydney, they were great rooms. So I had a, like, almost like a suite. And uh, my, my daughter's at school, at college at the moment, and she doesn't have as good a the rooms I had all those years ago, but um, I, I would say that I was very focused on a means to an end, so for me coming to, getting into Cambridge was all, always about getting a good job at the end of it, so as much as I enjoyed my time here, it was very much, I was very focused on doing well. So you graduated from Cambridge and you mentioned earlier how you sort of fell into football by accident, so um, talk us through the process of working at the highest levels of business and then beginning to think about purchasing Tottenham Hotspur Football Club? It's a bit of a long story, really. I, when I left university, I went into investment banking and I was very interested, effectively, in private equity, which was investing in private companies. And I ra helped raise quite a lot of money for different businesses. And then from there, I got involved in actually running a number of different companies. And then I got an opportunity to be involved in buying an interest in a small public company, which was called Enic, and it was an investment trust worth about five million pounds at the time. And it had nothing in it except a portfolio of shares. And I became managing director of that company. And uh, I came up with the idea of, at the time, of investing in, or trying to create a sports and media company. And so we uh, bought a portfolio of, of soccer clubs around Europe, 
he had six different clubs, and one of them happened to be a minority shareholding in Tottenham. Um, and then we had a problem with UEFA, and UEFA decided that all these clubs weren't able to compete in the same European competition. Our share price collapsed, um, and a number of years later, we really took this company, took Enic private, and from that, we, we basically got rid of all the other clubs, sold them all off. And we had this interest in, in Tottenham, and we decided to increase our shareholding. Uh, I had no intention at that point in time to be involved in the day-to-day -day running of the club. Mm. It was purely, at the time, an investment opportunity. Um, and then I realised, actually, to really maximise the opportunity and have an influence mm. um, over the success of the club, I really needed to get involved, and that's what happened. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to point out the... Um Guardian wrote a profile on you when you took over in 2000, and it was said, quote, Levy hates publicity and has no desire to take on the chairmanship, preferring instead to find a figurehead and pull the strings in the background. You're sitting here now doing an interview in front of hundreds of people, <laughs> and you are the longest serving chairman in the Premier League. So what changed? Firstly, as you probably know, I don't do interviews very often. So it's only because I'm coming back to Cambridge that I agreed to do this, and particularly when I got, got an email from Oxford University, I thought I'd better come to Cambridge. <laughs> um, so the, the, the answer is, I mean, it's, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, you know, in the, in the 22 years, Tottenham has progressed enormously in that time period, not as much as, as, fa as a fan we would hope, mm. but um, hopefully it's, the journey's not over and we're still hoping that we're going to get that trophy which we need. <laughs> And in that, in that 22 years, Daniel, um, you've, been, you've been in charge of Spurs, I want to talk about some of your proudest achievements. Um, I want to start off by talking about on the pitch. In that 22 years, what's been your proudest achievement on the pitch? You have had some silverware um, with Wanda Amazon. You had that incredible run to the Champions League final under Mauricio Pochettino. For you as the chairman, what have you been proudest of on the pitch? No, I think... So we had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with all our... We have about 750 staff in Tottenham. And we brought everyone together and we put up a, a big picture with lots of trophies in it. And it is about winning, but winning, depending on the moment in time you ask that question to various people, means different things. So when we first came into Tottenham, winning was making sure we stayed in the Premier League. Mm. And then as time goes on and we got more successful, it was about getting into the Europa League, getting into Champions League... And obviously, the ultimate is to win the trophies. Um, so, you know, that is clearly what we're trying to do. It's easier said than done. Um, am I happy that we haven't won more than one trophy in the last 15 years? Absolutely not. But I also think that we've had some fantastic times. You know, we've been in Champions League a number of, a number of times. And despite the fact that I feel sick that there's a club in North London that's a bit higher than us at this moment in time, mm. um, you know, if I look back over the last five years, we've also been above them. So, you know... That's what happens. We talk about off the pitch as well, Daniel. Um, I think what many people in this room will not be that aware of is the work that Tottenham Hotspur does in the community. And I wondered if you wanted to expand a little bit more about that. Um, I, th I think because I came from a background where I had to fight to get where I am today, um, and everyone said I wouldn't make it, what I, have a, I feel I have a huge responsibility. The power of Tottenham and the club and the brand we can really influence people's lives. So when I look at the area of Tottenham, it's a very deprived area. It's better now than it was 10 years ago, but you know, the London riots emanated from Tottenham. Um, and I want to really make a difference. My legacy is not 
yes, of course I want to win, but actually affecting people's lives. And I think what we've done with the college, uh, you know, we created the college uh, using the power of our name. We gave some money. We got a number of private schools involved with it, the teachers to help. And we've taken some of the best students from the local community and given them an opportunity. And I'm immensely proud that some of them are here today. Mm. And we've changed their lives. It's, it's an amazing achievement. And one of my good friends at Homerton College, Mazin, uh, cannot be here today as his exams start in a few weeks. But uh, he's also immensely grateful um, for the opportunity he was given. And when you're thinking about what Spurs have done in the local community, obviously you can't think about that without thinking about this incredible new stadium, um, new White Hart Lane which has been built. I wonder, obviously, as someone that's been a Spurs fan for decades, when did you realise that the old White Hart Lane wasn't cutting it anymore? Well, in fact, when, when we first got involved in Tottenham in 2001, we knew at that time that in order to become a bigger club, we had to solve the stadium. And the reason the stadium was a problem was, you know, as a potential Spurs fan, we couldn't get the young kids into a game because there were no tickets available. So we knew we had to find a way to build a bigger stadium. Um, it's an immense challenge for a private organisation. Um, and it took us uh, probably 17, 18 years to get there. And how hands-on were you in the process of building the new stadium? Uh, some would say too hands-on. <laughs> um, but yes, it, listen, it was important that we created something that was truly special. Yeah. And many people obviously have such fond memories of the old White Hart Lane. What kind of... Um, initiatives have you done to keep the spirit of the old White Hart Lane in the new stadium? I guess the most important thing about the old White Hart Lane was the atmosphere. Everyone remembers the atmosphere. So we spent a lot of time with the architects and all the acoustic experts to try and make sure that even though the stadium's much bigger, that we could create a fantastic atmosphere. And our south stand, which uh, you know, seats 17,500 people, uh, is an amazing uh, noise of noise i mean the noise in that stadium it vibrates all the way around mm. well the, the the south stand is is obviously i think it's the largest single, single tier. tier stand mm. in europe you've got the longest bar in europe in the tottenham hotspur stadium you've got the first ever retractable uh, pitch you've just got the first ever in stadium karting rink and an amazing amount of firsts but that has come obviously at a huge financial price um a, a very large debt for the club is that something that you're at all concerned about as the chairman De debt's not really a problem in you know, anyone that understands finance, provided you can match long-term income streams with long-term debt, and it's financed properly, it's not a problem. And the fact, you know, our debt is 30, basically it's a 30-year mortgage at a very low interest rate, so it's not a problem. No problem at all. Fantastic. Sticking on the realm of finance, when you took over Spurs in 2000, it was valued at just under £100 million. Now it's one of the top ten most valuable clubs in the world with the latest valuation by Forbes putting in at around the two billion mark. To what do you attribute this financial success? I mean, you know, when you're building a club and you're building long-term value, I would say there's a number of ingredients. One is profitability. Uh, some clubs are valued a lot of money that aren't profitable, so therefore revenue becomes important. Uh, physical assets, success on the pitch, Mm. There's no one aspect. You really need them all to come together. Mm. Talking a bit more about your personal um, style, I hope you don't mind me saying this, you've been described by one newspaper as more painful to deal with than a hip replacement. Mm. How would you describe your negotiating style? And, and bear in mind, I'm sure everyone remembers, that Daniel was 
took a very key role in negotiating what was at the time, in 2013, the world record transfer between Tottenham Hotspur and Real Madrid for Gareth Bale. So how would you describe your negotiating style? Firstly, that comment was from Alex Ferguson, um, <laughs> and who remains a friend. Right? So, you know, all I was doing was protecting the interests of my club. Um, and, you know, I shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be seen as a negative, the fact that I want to maximise the price for the benefit of the club, because all the money goes back into reinvesting. So, do you think you're more painful to deal with than a hip replacement? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Daniel. I'm um, going to ask a few footballing-related questions. And then what we're going to do is we're going to open it up to, to the floor. So, in 2018, when Tottenham bowed out of the Champions League to Juventus of throwing away a 3-2 aggregate lead, um, I know many people in this room will be familiar with this quote, but are you familiar with the quote from Giorgio Cellini, where he described it as the history of Tottenham? implying that Spurs have neither the history nor the competition know-how to succeed and compete for the top trophies. Um, as the executive of the football club, I mean, do you think this is a fair comment and are trophies the most important thing for you? I, you know, if you go back in history, Tottenham was a club that, you know, has lots of history because it's won things. In recent time, it's not been where it needs to be. Um, but as I said before, you know, we're on a journey and we need, we need to get better success on the pitch. But, you know, we have been in the Champions League a number of times and we almost got there winning the ultimate, which would have been winning the Champions League. Mm. Do you think that Harry Kane can win a trophy at Spurs or does he need to move on somewhere else? He can absolutely win a trophy at Spurs. But, you know, being, being a legend is also important. You know, the fact that he's the top scorer... Mm. Uh, for, for Tottenham Hotspur. He's making history. Mm. Um, and you know, I hope one day that there's a statue of Harry Kane outside our stadium. Uh, I think many people in the room will be very curious as to what a day in your life as the chairman of one of England's most successful teams looks like. And the uh, Amazon cameras might have given us some insight to that. But what I'm particularly curious about is your role in some of these negotiations particularly in terms of transfers and managers. Uh, there's a lot of talk in the press at the minute about Tottenham's managerial situation. But um, looking back at some of the decisions that you've had to make as chairman, whether that's hiring managers or firing managers, um, how difficult is that for you when you've got a lot of people's jobs on the line? I think as far as the manager are concerned, they know when they come in to manage a football club, it's just part of the game. It's not personal. You know, we're in the business of winning and if they don't win enough games they know that their job's on the line and they're paid very well for that mm. so it's just just how it is it's not personal all the managers that have left Tottenham you know uh, I, I'm either still in contact with or they come back to games it, it's, it's not personal Speaking of the long term there have been reports last month um, of an imminent £3 billion bid from a billionaire, uh, Jarm Najafi, and meetings with Qatar Sports Investment Group, which are the owners of PSG, with yourself in the media. Um, is there any truth in these reports? And if a bid does come in, would you be tempted to sell Tottenham? I, I answer this question the way I've answered it for the last 22 years. So, Enic owns approximately 87% of the club. We have 30,000 shareholders most of who are fans that own shares. And we have a duty to consider any proposals that anyone wants to make. 
All I would say is we're not in negotiations with anybody, nor have we been over recent months, and all the stuff that has been in the newspapers is completely untrue. Now I'm going to open up to some questions from the floor. Um, this hand over there, shot straight up, so you please. Thanks for coming, Daniel. I've got a very simple question. Uh, what do you think of Tottenham? <laughs> it's the greatest club in the world. Next, please. I'm going to go to a gentleman. Actually, I'm just going to go. I'll give you some time to run back over there. <laughs> Is anyone on this side? Over there, please. Gentleman in glasses. There's a microphone just coming to you now. How do you think that the average Spurs fan perceives you? <laughs> I'm not sure what an average Spurs fan is, but um, I'd hope they would perceive that I'm always acting in the best interest of the club. Um, I've given a large proportion of my working life to the club, and I think the club today, hopefully they will perceive it to be in a better place than when I first got involved. Lovely. Um, just go back over to that gentleman over there. Um, firstly, thank you very much uh, for your talk. Well, I was going to ask you, um, with regards to ticket prices, uh, Spurs has, as you know, some of the most expensive season tickets in the world. And um, as a fan myself, it seems like many people are priced out of it. With recent kind of um, demonstrations like 20s plenty from buying fans away at Liverpool and lots of talk about ticket prices, especially on the cost of living crisis. For young people particularly, do you think the ticket prices perhaps alienate people and how is it justified? Is it a long-term thing or...? Because I think ticket pricing is a very complicated subject. So firstly, uh, you know, there is a conflict between uh, ticket pricing, having the best stadium in the world and also wanting to win on the pitch and pay high transfer fees and high salaries to get the best talent. Um, in an ideal world, you'd like to have very low ticket pricing and to have the best players in the world and the best facilities. So somehow we have to find the right balance. And the way we try and do it, firstly, we have concession pricing uh, for a number of areas in the stadium for young adults, kids, and uh, the older generation. But also when it comes to cup games, we try and price those very competitively. So this year there's been lots of games that have been 20, 25 pounds and then concession pricing on top. Just that gentleman in the front in the Tottenham shirt, please. I'm going to stay on the subject of um, ticketing and maybe you're not the right person to ask this to, but I thought who better to go to than, than the main man himself. So I like to follow Spurs whenever I can. I was saying earlier, I've been to Marseille away this season. And the reason I went is because it's the only one I've had enough loyalty points to go to. And that's because there's a loophole in the system really where you can only go to away games if you've got enough points to be able to go to away games. And then people who have enough points get more points when they give them to their friends, even if they're not being, etc. And it's just impossible. And so for fans to be able to go to away games, I think for Spurs fans, there needs to be a new system in place. Has the club considered this at all? Is it something you're working on? I think maybe a balloting system, partial balloting, partial loyalty points might be something worth looking at. The answer is we're not working on any, any change to the system at the moment, but I, I do think the point you're making is valid, although some people would argue that uh, and I think you'll find the actual official 
official supporters club would probably state that you know if you've gone to a number of away games you accumulate points and therefore you should have the priority so yeah i understand the i understand um i'm just going to go to if we get that gentleman in the blue shirt over here please matt Hi. Um, I must confess, I'm actually a bit more of a rugby fan, but I'm really curious from the business point of view. Um, on, in the Premiership, we've seen two rugby clubs go out of business this year, but I've also taken a lot of note how Tottenham's expanded its kind of business model. You know, you're doing stuff with the NFL, and you know, I think I saw something about a Formula One partnership, or, you know, as, as from the business side, do you have any thoughts on how, you know, rugby could, you know, expand to, you know, increase its audience, but also, you know, have a better business model that's more sustainable going forwards? Well, in fact, we, we are trying to help rugby expand its audience. So we're actually holding some rugby games at our stadium. And because it's such a great venue, it's widening the audience. So I think you know, every sporting org organisation needs to challenge themselves. How can they build a bigger fan base? So in Spain, you know, various football cup competitions now are held overseas to try and widen the audience. So I think you need to be innovative. Uh, just back over to that side, please. Um, to gentlemen just down right there at the end of that row. Hi, Daniel. Um, so with the super wealth coming into football from Qatar, Saudi Arabia, for example, um, we've seen the impacts with Man City and now Newcastle. Um, what implications do you think this would have for clubs such as Tottenham in the future? Well, firstly, there's, um, there's new rules coming into effect this season, UEFA rules, where uh, sustainability is going to become much more paramount in people's minds. So you'll be limited to the amount you can spend on wages and transfer fees, effectively the amortisation element, as a percentage of, of your total turnover. So it's starting off at 90%, and over three years it's going down to 70%. The impact of that is effectively some form of wage control. Um, so I think even though clubs have been spending very heavily, and we talk about someone like Chelsea, uh, now the new rules come into effect this summer, I think you'll find that um, regardless of who, who is the owner, it's going to have quite an impact on the financing of football. Lovely stuff. Uh, could we please go to that gentleman in the back there in the red and white scarf? <coughs> Buckle up for this one. <laughs> Hi there. Uh, I just wanted uh, to ask you, as the best negotiator out there in the football world, uh, what makes you so special uh, in that terms? And um, can you please provide us with some insights on uh, some some special transfers that happened, uh, such as Bales and Modric's transfers? Well, I, firstly, I, I don't consider myself a special negotiator or anything like that. I, the fact I'm just acting, in the, as I said before, in the best interest of my club. I think when it comes to the, the transfer, it depends on the balance of power. If you have a player that you really don't want to sell, um, then you have every right to say no. You own the registration. So it, it depends also perhaps on the character of the player, whether you feel at the end you can keep the player, um, because we're operating in a team sport. It's very important that we keep the team together. 
So every circumstance is different. Um, right, going back over to that side, could we go in the middle, gentlemen over there? Yeah, you, fantastic. <laughs> All questions. Thanks for a great talk. Um, in the next, say, five years, do you see Premier League games being played overseas? I think there may be some pressure for uh, one or two games to be played overseas, but I think it will probably be resisted. I, I would suspect it's more likely you'll see a cup competition played overseas. Going over back to this side, um, could we go to this gentleman right on my side over here, please, Sam? Thank you. Thank you very much for coming, Daniel. On the issue of things like financial fair play in principle, do you think an appropriate balance has to be struck? Because would you accept that there are benefits in investment in smaller clubs so that the same European and English giants don't dominate the trophies until the end of time, really? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. Um, in fact, under the financial fair play rules, you are able to make investment. Uh, I think the, the most important thing is to make sure we don't get ourselves in a place where unlimited investment can be made that isn't sustainable and that investment suddenly stops or that owner suddenly goes and then the club, the club disappears. That's why you just have to find the right balance. Lovely. Um, just over there, the gentleman in glasses, please. And then if you could keep the microphone and just pass it to the gentleman two seats left of you just to save our lovely events team a bit of a walk. What's kind of, you know, for such a big club like Tottenham, what's the strategy for getting the women's team to compete with the likes of Chelsea, Arsenal's, Man City's, and are there any parallels to earlier um, in your tenure with the men's team? That's a very good question. Women's versus men's football, very different. Uh, at, the, at the moment, I, I think people look at women's football and think it should be the same as men's football in terms of how it's run and all the rules. And actually, it needs to be something completely different because if you look at the economics of women's football at the moment, there is not the consumer interest compared to men's. Ticket pricing is exceedingly low. Um, TV rights are very low. Sponsorship interest is limited. Um, and as a consequence, every single club in the Premier League, women's club, is losing money. And in the long term, that's not sustainable. So something is going to have to change. And that's why there's currently a number of reviews going on as to what those changes should be. You said just building on from <coughs> sorry, Sam's point earlier, you said in that video about building a home that... In the ideal world, every chairman would like to have a manager who's there for you know, 10 years. Do you still think that's, that's true? I think, I think every chair, chairman dreams that. I think it's very, very difficult in the competitive nature of, of football today that you have continuity of a manager over a long time. If you look on the continent, it's so different to how it is in England. Uh, in England, we all dream of having managers that, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years. In, in other countries, Coaches are appointed for two years. Mm. They're far less important. The media attention is not on the coach. It's much more about the club. It's a cultural thing we have in England. Mm. The manager is 
He's almost bigger than the club. But in reality, he isn't. It's just also looking at recent appointments at Tottenham. Uh, managers like Jose Mourinho, Antonio Conte, they are proven winners. But most fans of clubs that they've been at will say that there is a shelf life. They will have two, three really good seasons and it'll run out of steam. So I wonder, is that what you were hoping for when you made those appointments, to have two seasons of winning and then move on? I think whenever you appoint a, a coach, you're always employing them because you think they're going to make you win. Uh, you don't appoint them with the intention, oh, it's only going to be for one year or two years. You hope it will be long term. All I'm making the observation is, in Europe, coaches are only appointed for one or two years. Whereas in this country, we're obsessed with, well, if someone gets appointed and only has a two-year contract, how do you expect him to succeed if he's only got two years? Hi. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, so, as a United fan uh, who has followed, I guess, the critique that has been afforded to the Glazers uh, for oftentimes, you know, not being necessarily fans of the club and, you know, just being you know, pure financial wizards and, you know, who sit there over in the U.S., they own Tampa Bay and so on. Uh, what is your stance on owners needing to be fans that are engaged in the club that they're owning? Uh, or is, can a, basically, can a good owner still be a financial guru as long as they appoint the right people? I think anyone that buys a football club... Uh, they may not fully understand or have the connection with the fans, but they do want the same thing as the fans, which is to win. So I think it would be wrong to assume that the Glazers don't want Manchester United to win. I'm sure they do. Just staying over here, um, could we go to the gentleman in the green there? And then if you could pass it along to the gentleman in the orange next to you. Hi, thanks for your time today. Um, as you said, you're quite a private person and you never really comment publicly on club matters. Um, have there ever been times you've been quite frustrated not being able to justify certain decisions to the fan base? Because as a fan, sometimes that silence can be quite frustrating for us. Probably every day. <laughs> I mean, the media, the media often print stories um, that just aren't true. Um, perceptions get, uh, you know, an article gets printed, then it becomes you know, a story, then it becomes a reality. Um, but, you know, I've remained dignified and I just won't comment. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Daniel. Um, in a sort of non-Tottenham-specific but more Premier League-specific question, what do you think about the 3 p.m. the 3 p.m. blackout and the potential for fans to not be able to watch their clubs on television? And seeing as like you're a fan, but also someone, you know, in the business of the sport, do you think this is beneficial? Is there a financial impact, or is there some other reason that is not um, sort of public to us? I mean, that's, that's a historic rule uh, that is under debate at this very moment in time. I think it's very important that we protect stadiums. One of the reasons English football is so great is we have, in most cases, full stadiums, and we need to protect that against television. So there has to be a, there has to be a balance between showing all the games on television and still having fans that come and watch live games. Um, you know, we started a little bit late, so if you're, are we all right to just carry on for a few more minutes? Fantastic. Um, so we've got lots more questions. Uh, I'm going to go just to that gentleman in the back over there. I'll go back to you. <laughs> Hi, Daniel. Thanks for coming and uh, uh, not going to the other place. Um, 
I'm really interested that you mentioned the brand of Tottenham, and obviously there's a lot of rumours about the NFL potentially coming to London and Tottenham Hotspur Stadium being the sort of home for them. What are your ambitions for the Tottenham Hotspur brand beyond football, and then how does that then feed into the football club itself? So everything we've been doing in the stadium itself, like the NFL and our recently announced Formula One partnership, is really to expand the revenue streams for the venue and all that money gets reinvested in the team. Um, and you know, the relationship with the NFL and with Formula One will, over time, expand the fan base of Tottenham Hotspur. At least that's what we hope. And I'm sure if you go to the United States today and you ask people, have you heard of Tottenham Hotspur, compared to, say, 10 years ago, I'm sure as a result of our partnership with the NFL, we have a much bigger following than we otherwise would have had. So that's really what the strategy is. Lovely. And just that gentleman over there. Uh, thanks for coming today. I've been a Spurs fan since the mid-80s. So there are undoubted highs in the 2016, 17, 18, 19 season challenging for the league. Hadn't really happened in my lifetime. Champions League final. Um, there's a few things I can pinpoint as the relative decline in the last couple of years. A friend of mine sent me a text message this morning saying I can pinpoint it exactly. And he sent me a photograph and it was Maurizio Pochettino's book, Brave New World. Um, did he sanction that with you? Did he discuss it with you? Um, it was obviously a book by a current manager about current players, uh, a bit controversial. Um, and how do you think that affected things? Uh, the answer is we did know about it. Uh, it was his choice to do it. Um, some people would say it was a good thing, some people would say it's a bad thing. But it was his choice and we clearly didn't stop it. Fantastic, thank you. Um, that gentleman in the red, just back there, please, Matt. And then if you pass the microphone on to the gentleman in glasses, just in front of you. Hi, thanks for coming. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the time before you got involved in the running of the club. Um, what back then made you decide you wanted to get involved in running the club? What changes did you identify needed to be made and what changes did you make when you joined? I think it's... Well, firstly, I, when you're a fan and you're also an investor, I think you have a much more balanced view as to the decisions that need to be taken in running a club. It's very easy, trust me, if you're emotionally connected, but you're not financially connected, to make some very bad decisions or rash decisions. This is a, you know, as much as we all may love our clubs, they're also businesses where you have to make sure that the income is sufficient to cover the costs. And it's very easy to get into trouble. And so I realised quite early on that if we really wanted to make Tottenham successful, that it would be beneficial if somebody that was involved in running the club uh, was also not just a fan, but also an investor. Sort of actually just to follow on from that, um, people come in and invest in clubs with, it costs a lot of money. Um, often people who invest in clubs aren't actually affiliated with those clubs, they're not actually fans often. Um, you get 
a lot of hate. A lot of ch club chairmen and owners are hated. Uh, you, the people that judge you are incredibly fickle a lot of the time. Um, and very few sort of chairmen and, and owners are loved. Why then invest in a football club or become a chairman in the first place? Well, that's where perhaps I'm a bit different because I was a fan first, investor second. Elton, we've got time for just a couple more questions. Just want to go back over to this side. Um, could we actually have this gentleman in the front row, please? All right, so in general, teams in the Premier League can spend more than teams in other, other top leagues in Europe, right? So I want to ask you, if you were like chairman of a, one of the mid-table French sites, what would you do to try and close that gap? <clears throat> so I think you just, I think when you look at a club, you have to decide where you are in the pecking order. So I accept that there may be certain clubs in Europe that are bigger than us. I have to decide whether we can build our club sufficiently to compete with that club. And if I can, then let's try and do that. And if I can't, I need to be realistic. So it's very important, therefore, if you're a small club, is your fan base ever going to be as big as some other clubs? And you have to look at perhaps the location where you are. Um, so I think you have to be careful that you don't get carried away because sometimes a small club can have a particularly successful season and that's fantastic. But if you then believe you can always do that and compete with some of the biggest clubs, um, maybe you can't because your fan base is never going to be big enough. Um, so Spurs is kind of generally regarded as being one of the most kind of like financially sustainable and sensible clubs in the Premier League with regards to how it does its transfer business and like, you know, long-term investments like the stadium. However, for many fans, they see this as coming at the expense of kind of on-field success and winning trophies. So I wonder whether you agree with this firstly, and if you do agree with this, then what long-term implications do you think this has for the types of like individuals or entities that can own football clubs? Because uh, I, I guess my starting point is I don't agree with it. Because if you look at um, the amount of money that Tottenham has spent on new players over the last five or ten years, and you compare it with certain other clubs in the Premier League, not only have we exceeded those clubs, but actually um, some of those clubs may well have been more successful than us on the pitch. There is not necessarily a direct link between the amount of money you spend and getting success on the pitch. Invariably, it's what you spend it on. I can name, I won't name, but we could all name probably in here, uh, a number of players that Tottenham has bought um, have, that have not been successful and we've lost an awful lot of money. Just two final ones from me, just building on that one. Obviously, the Premier League has, FA has come out and charged <coughs> Manchester City with historic financial breaches. Do you see that in any way as some kind of vindication of your own tight control of, of Spurs' purse strings? I think, you know, we have Premier League rules yeah. and they should apply to every club, small and big. And I think it's right for the authorities. They must enforce those rules. I'm not coming on Manchester City. Let's see whether they get proved uh, correct or not. But um, there are rules there for a reason. Fantastic. And uh, I, did, I did have a killer final question, but my, uh, <laughs> my colleague there in the Japan shirt took it from me very early on. So I'm going to ask you a different one, Daniel. You mentioned mm. earlier about how you'd like Harry Kane to, to have a statue outside of Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, 
I wonder, when you took over in 2000, your, your interests were listed as uh, making money and supporting Spurs <laughs> in a profile written by The Telegraph. But as we sit here today and all the work you've done in the community over the last over two decades that you've been in charge uh, with pupils uh, at Cambridge having gone to the school that Tottenham Hotspur has funded, you could possibly add other things to that list of interests. So I wonder if, when Harry Kane gets his statue, um, would there be a Daniel Levy statue as well? And if there is, what would you like it to, to say? Well, I don't need a statue, but what I would love to happen if I look back in time is the area of Tottenham is completely regenerated and the club is responsible or certainly a major contributing factor for the regeneration of the area because I think it's a, a wonderful thing to really change people's lives. And one piece of advice that you could give, obviously you were a Cambridge student yourself um, a few decades ago, what would you say to current Cambridge students about about life, about business, about sport, about passion, about education, anything at all? I think when you're at an institution like this, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I d you may not realise the significance of, of where you are, but you will do in later life. I think Oxford and Cambridge is a calling card. It opens doors. I think that don't mess up the opportunity, work hard, don't just play at college. Uh, it's very easy to do that. Um, certainly when I was here, believe it or not, I actually thought I failed my finals. Um, so when I got a first, I was completely gobsmacked. The answer, nothing's impossible. Uh, I certainly teach my children that, you know, shoot for the stars. Okay, you may not get there. If you work hard, you'll get quite close. Fantastic. I think we've all been very, very lucky to uh, spend some time with Daniel today, and I hope you'd all join me. Give him a big round of applause. Thank you for coming. <laughs>